Hello, everyone. This is Tavry Nasir. Some of you may have noticed that we didn't release a new episode two weeks ago. The reason for that is that my dad had just passed away two days before this episode was originally supposed to air. I have no doubt the reason I'm such a fan of learning about different topics, cultures, and people is because of my dad. Because, like me, he loved to read, and he loved learning something new, which is why I'm sure he would have loved listening to this episode. So, Dad, this episode's for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Tavin Nazir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavin Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you to improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and what some of our clients have had to say about our work, visit our company's website at tavernasir.com. And while you're there, check out my award-winning internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. And now, let's meet my guest for this episode, Professor Ed Hess. You cannot command and control somebody to be innovative or creative. You cannot command and control somebody to basically have positive emotions. It doesn't work. So there's a, the workplace is going to have to be humanized to enable this type of human development in the workplace because we haven't come to the table already developed. Ed is the Professor Emeritus of Business Administration and Batten Executive in Residence at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Ed has authored over 100 articles and over 60 cases looking at growth, innovation, and learning cultures. Ed is also the author of 13 books, including the award-winning Smart Growth, Learn or Die, and Humility is the New Smart. On today's episode, Ed and I will be discussing his latest book, Hyper Learning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Well, it's great being with you. Thank you for having me. Now, Ed, I should point out how I was drawn to your book just from its title because of my love of learning. And I have to tell you how pleasantly surprised I was reading it and the insights you share on not only how, but why we need to rethink and take a different approach to how we learn. But to start things off here, let's start with an explanation of what hyperlearning is. And more interestingly, why is this so crucial to our long-term success? Well, hyperlearning, I define hyperlearning, if you will, using the old Greek definition of hyper, above and beyond. It doesn't mean being nervous or fidgety, all right? It's not fidgety learning or, or nervous learning. It's, it's, it's above and beyond, which means we'll call it excellence at the highest level learning. And it's, it's basically learning, unlearning, and relearning at the speed of change. And so the hyper part is, is, comes out because the digital age is going to transform how we work, who works, what work we're going to do, and we're constantly going to have to be upgrading our stories of how the world works, our mental models, just like we upgrade our devices, 
software updates, we're going to have to continuously learn at the pace of change, which is going to get faster and faster and faster. The shelf life of new information is predicted to have going to have two to three year max life, which means that what you know today maybe be replaced or improved upon substantially going forward. And the big challenge that we all have is, is that we're, we're not basically wired to be hyper learners. All right. We're the, the neuroscience is quite clear. We're all suboptimal learners. Uh, we're very speedy, efficient learners. All right. We go out in the world and we only see what we believe. We seek confirmation of what we believe. We seek affirmation of our ego. We're emotionally defensive. We deny, we defend, we deflect. And we've got these stories about how the world works. You've got your stories, I've got my stories. And the way we're wired is, is we go out there looking for confirmation of our stories. We don't process information which disagrees with our stories. Uh, that's science. That's proven. And most smart people find that shocking. All right. Well, we came up in a different era. We came up in a different era where the speed of knowledge creation wasn't as fast. We went to school and we, high school to college, maybe graduate school, and we got educated and we went out and we did something for 20, 30, 40 years and we retired. You know, that's gone. That's gone. People are going to basically, the predictors today are predicting somebody coming out of college today will have at least five different careers, totally different careers during their life. And so we're looking at technology transforming how everything is done in our society. And as I said, how we work, how we live, but most importantly, who's going to work. And people are going to have work if they can add value in ways the technology can't add. That's the critical thing. You know, Ed, what struck me about this idea is how when you hear discussions about AI and other emerging technologies, the focus tends to be on what jobs will disappear in the next five, 10 years and how this will change the way we obtain goods and services. Outside of that, though, there hasn't been a deeper discussion of how it will impact all the jobs that will remain as the focus is more on job security. For example, how AI lacks, as you mentioned, the creativity and insights necessary for innovation and critical thinking. So work involving that kind of skill be safe. And yet, as you pointed out, as we move further into the digital age, the conversation should not just be about which jobs will become obsolete. It's really about how we need to become more agile, more adaptive to remain relevant and contribute meaningfully as things evolve and change. And I especially like the fact that you're pointing out that it's also about that emotional context in terms of how we relate to one another and how we're able to partner and collaborate, driving those innovations, driving those changes. Yeah, and you're exactly right. You're, you're exactly right. Um, ultimately, ultimately, in some of the brightest people, including Nobel laureates, have very recently stated publicly that by 2030, there'll be very few cognitive tasks that AI will not be able to do. Very few. And it's primarily the tasks which you just talked about, the innovative, the creative, when you don't have a lot of data. Now, the technology is going to be able to come up with ideas, all right? But 
they're not going to be able to go out and explore with you know customers and other human beings the the ideas and that's where the human emotional part comes into people have to understand that no person is going to be able to achieve excellence in the workplace going forward by themselves all right and everything's going to be done in small teams diverse small teams because people with different experiences are going to be, or different stories about how the world works is going to be necessary and the thing that's really technology is going to drive us human beings to basically focus internally more and by that I mean to take ownership and manage how we think and to manage our emotions and to basically manage our body and our uh, and I've said emotions our feelings and this whole concept of of how do I show up to work in a way that I from a human perspective can basically bring not only my best self to work but be able to overcome all my bias or mitigate my biases and overcome the way I'm wired and it's this mastery of self uh, which dates back thousands of years to the great philosophies in in you know it's a quiet ego a quiet mind a calm body and a positive emotional state we haven't been trained that way okay we haven't trained to basically take ownership of our emotions and to learn how to generate positive emotions which basically enable the highest levels of learning and to mitigate and manage negative emotions and don't allow negative emotions to overtake and control you and own you so to speak so the inner work that humans are going to need to do in order to come to the workplace in a way that their ego doesn't get in the way they can be really really present concentrating their mind doesn't wander all right they're emotionally calm but even more importantly they can relate and engage with other people and make positive emotional connections biochemically with each other which basically builds trust which allows us to have high quality making meaning conversations and that's where all this is going you cannot command and control somebody to be innovative or creative you cannot command and control somebody to basically have positive emotions it doesn't work so there's a the workplace is going to have to be humanized to enable this type of human development in the workplace because we haven't come to the table already developed absolutely so with that in mind ed I'd love to delve deeper into the concepts you write in your book because I'm sure many of my listeners are like me and thinking, well, I love to learn, so I should be good. But as you point on your book, and as you just mentioned now, we're all suboptimal learners. And in large part, that's because of our brain relies on very shortcuts like cognitive biases and habits that really impede our ability to be truly aware and present, to not only see and understand what's going on, but to also be willing to accept information ideas that counter what we believe to be true. And as you also just pointed out, it's also our emotional state that tends to color and influence how we see and understand a situation. And I love how what you call the foundational building block to becoming a hyper learner is something I don't think anyone would get right on the first guess. And that is to become a hyper learner, 
we need to achieve inner peace, which we obtain through four elements that you mentioned just earlier, a quiet ego, a quiet mind, a quiet body, and a positive emotional state. So I was wondering, since you just mentioned it, could you take us through these four elements, Ed, and how does achieving inner peace through these four elements make us a better or a hyper learner? Well, if you achieve the state of inner peace, and it's an ongoing process because you will never achieve perfection, so it's a life, lifelong journey, but people that, have, that are on the journey will tell you it's the most important journey they ever have taken. I've never had somebody not say that. And I've worked a lot with people helping them get, get on the journey. And so I define inner peace as a state of inner stillness and calmness that enables you to embrace the world with your most non-judgmental, fearless, open mind with a lack of self-absorption. And it's in that state of being that you're able to perceive more, hear more, be open to learning more. And it involves those four quiet ego, quiet mind, uh, et cetera, that you mentioned. And the book puts forth science. How do I quiet my ego? How do I quiet my mind? And, and what's so fascinating is, is the answers are two to 3,000 years old, and it comes, from the, it comes from the great Eastern and Western philosophies in the sense that uh, being, having a quiet mind and a quiet ego has been something which all of the philosophies in, in, in most of the major religions in the world have been talking about for you know thousands of years so for you to think in ways that the technology can't think you've got to be open to the world you got to be open to seeing hearing going out and seeking you got to be comfortable with not knowing you got to be instead of good at knowing you got to be good at not knowing and figuring and knowing how to learn how to ask questions. Most conversations are competitions in the business world. Most conversations, many conversations are just going through the motions because somebody's already made up their mind and that's going to be the answer. Well, all of that just doesn't work. It's not going to work anymore. And so if you th think about it, in order to have that quiet ego, that quiet mind, that quiet body in a positive emotional state, you know, you got to have humility. All right. You got to you got to have open mindedness. You got to have presence, mindfulness. You got to be a really good listener. You got to be curious. You got to have the courage to try. You got to basically be able to connect and relate in positive ways with other people. All of that can be learned behaviorally. And what people have to do is to get on that journey. And the book, if you take Quiet Ego uh, as an example, I mean, the science is overwhelming. The easiest way to quiet one's ego is to basically involve and get involved in mindfulness meditation and to develop a meditation practice, which you do daily 
ultimately you'll get to 20 minutes or 30 minutes that's where you want to end up it may take you you know months and months and months to get there but daily meditation daily intentions when you wake up in the morning you have your learning journal what are my intentions what are my behaviors I'm working on what what type of person do I want to be today and so that inner peace stuff is table stakes okay the people that basically are able to do that work are going to be able to engage in ways with the world going forward where they will be able to add more value than the people who can't engage that way and when you're looking at automation numbers in the United States at least that could be as high as 47 percent of the jobs the competition for jobs is going to be very very high so what do I need to do I need to bring my best self to work and that means I need to basically start working on mastering myself and 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 evidencing humility and compassion and open-mindedness and mindfulness and reflective listening and curiosity and courage it's a long list and otherness you know being able to relate with other people and just take them you know the the otherness otherness is like a pyramid you got to connect to people then you got to relate to them then you got to positively emotionally engage you've got to infirm them as an individual where you build trust with another person people that are going to be successful in the digital age are people that basically are trustworthy and that are not going to compete with other people or harm other people this is what i found interesting while reading your book ed is that you know when we think of learning and i think this is probably the product of our formal education systems we tend to think of learning in the context of how well we learn a subject, how well we become a subject matter expert. And what I found truly fascinating in reading your book is that, as you just were pointing out, this is really about making those efforts to ensure what we're being our best self, that we're being mindful of how we're showing up and how we're able to connect with others. Because as you pointed out, the work that really we're going to be able to do, that's the only work that AI and other emerging technologies will not be able to take away from us, are ones where we're working in collaboration with others effectively as a team environment. So we are understanding the emotional context that we're creating as leaders and how that impacts the ability of other people to freely share their own insights, their perspectives that could help us innovate and adapt and change. And so it's quite interesting take. It's almost like we're shifting our mindset in terms of how we understand learning, development, and growth, where it's not about, okay, I have to learn these new skills as it is. It's more about understanding ourselves and how we're showing up and how that emotional state and how that mental state, where are we, are we truly present to listen and understand others and be heard and understood ourselves really is what's going to be the differentiating factor in terms of our ability to innovate and be creative in the years ahead. You're exactly right. And I think the big change is, is that knowing more content is not going to be the way to have meaning basically for success going forward. It's the how-to skills, how to manage ourselves, all right? our thinking, our emotions, our body, our behaviors, how to listen, how to really have a making meaning conversation with somebody. 
where you're actually making meaning together and learning from each other and coming up and leaving the table, both of you, at a better place than you were when you came because you learned something that or something new came out of the conversation. All right, because ego wasn't in the way and it wasn't a competition. All right. And and then the other things that, that's going to be since change is going to be so continuous, we're going to have to constantly be having the courage and resilience to go into the unknown and figure stuff out. To actually go into the unknown and figure stuff out. Where where all of that managing self comes comes down to is it basically enables exploration excellence, thinking excellence, emotional excellence, team excellence, all right? Because when you when you look at the science of teams, all right, and some of the best work has been done at, at MIT and at Carnegie Mellon, and it's pr the most successful teams out there, the research show, are teams that basically are caring, trusting teams who can basically consistently have high quality, making meaning, non-competitive conversations. And what's so fascinating about the research, and there's eight different research studies that have been done on this, and the reason there's eight, because they didn't believe the findings in the beginning. In fact, there's two different universities doing the studies because the second university didn't believe the first university. But there are two great universities. They're MIT and Carnegie Mellon. And it's the same findings. If you take a team of five people and you basically want to basically test their abilities to be innovative or creative, or you want to test their abilities to solve complex problems, and the purpose of the research is to put diverse teams together, all right? People are going to have good educations, good backgrounds, all of this stuff. And the real and the test was designed to basically look at the impact of gender on collaboration. And the research found no matter whether you were looking at innovation type of activities or solving problems activities, the most successful teams were teams that had five women and no men. The second most successful teams were teams that had four women and one man. The third best team was a team that had three women and two men. And that exercise has been replicated eight times. And what that says is, is that women come to the table differently than men vis-a-vis -vis what collaboration means and how to do it. And women come to the table not as competitive. Women come to the table treating collaboration as a relational process where men believe it's a transactional process. Who wins? All right. And so we men, and we can change, all of us can change, the men. We have to understand that this new way of being is not macho, it's not competitive, uh, it's collaborative, it's basically changing, changing our story of, what, of, of, of how to basically engage with others 
and uh, you know collaboration's not a competition um you know it's you know it's in everybody in 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 the, in the research women made sure that every person had it gave input and was involved men tend to in collaborations depending on the hierarchy when they hear the answer they want and get they tend to try to cut short the, the conversation and end it i won i got what i want time to go home women look at it as relational is, did every is everyone leaving in a good place did everyone feel listened to did everyone have a have the ability to speak up and so we got to rewire ourselves where we basically instead of seeking confirmation affirmation and cohesiveness we seek novelty exploration and discovery instead of active and we got to go out in the world not looking for information which says we write actively go out there and look for information that's going to say we're wrong and then figure out what that information tells us where we can basically get to a better point you know when i'm having conversations with people ask questions before telling to show people that you care about them and you're trying to understand them and to make sure you understand them before you basically put your two cents in it's it's just a whole way of different being and that's why and you so astutely said that who would have ever thought inner peace inner peace and what i how we define that is going to be the key building block for human excellence in the smart machine age who would have ever thought that it is surprising i mean i did have on a previous episode an expert in artificial intelligence and this was one of the things that he was bringing up was this idea that as much as everyone's concerned about how AI is going to lead to job losses and that we'd have to change the kind of work we do, he said he genuinely believes it's going to lead to a more human workplace because now we're going to be forced to focus on the things that only humans can do. And one of those things are our ability to truly connect with others, to see other people for who they are and to generally be invested in a shared purpose because we all care about collectively working together to make this purpose or this vision a reality. What, what you just said, I completely agree with. It's, um, it was an awesome summary of the reality and I agree with him. I do actually want to go back to something you just briefly touched on, Ed, in your previous comment, and that was this idea of making meaning conversations, which you do discuss at length in your book, where the goal is for both parties to feel heard, seen, and understood. And frankly, this is a product of becoming a hyper-learner because when you become a hyper-learner, you're actually able to truly connect with other people, to see them for more than what they do, but for who they are, what matters to them, what they care about, and what would make them feel like they're making a difference. Now, I know you mentioned in your book how leaders are not willing to invest the time to have these kind of conversations. In fact, I've been invited to give keynotes and leadership workshops to help an organization's leadership recognize just how critical this is to not only getting the best from their employees, but to reduce employee turnover because people are not feeling heard and understood. That they were brought in to share their insights, but after a few months on the job, they were basically told that no one wants to hear from you. We just want you to do what's assigned to you. 
So, Ed, how do we make this change and embrace these making meaning conversations, especially if this is something we're not used to doing or feel comfortable doing? Yeah. Um, well, one, if, you, if, you, if you're doing the work and, and the, the work is being supported by the organization you work for, which means others are doing the work, you're making progress as you go along and, and underlying collaboration is you know is the concept of, of of humility it's the it's the learning how to basically defer judgments and it's it's learning how to ask questions and explore and so you've you've been putting together the building blocks to get to the the point you are in your in your collaboration and and what will happen is is you will have certain meetings where really like it is really really taking place that everybody is all in you everybody i'm sure has heard of the, the the concept of flow in psychology when an individual is you know whether climbing a mountain or it's a sport or it's a musician when you're just totally all in and time goes away and your whole being is into what you're doing well that's where we want to get in 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 collaboration teams that's 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 where you optimize collective intelligence to reach what i call collective flow and i've worked with companies that develop the skills they can get into these to what i call collective flow within 15 minutes of a meeting starting and what comes out of those meetings i've experienced them i've been in them you're able to tap the highest level of human engagement which is called emergent thinking and emergent thinking is when if you will your conscious thinking and your subconscious is basically interrelating and emergent thinking is stuff just you're so quiet inside and engaged with things stuff comes up into your mind that you don't know where it comes from that is transformational that is just where did that come from but it is so it is in most cases so powerful that it that it, it allows decisions and in and and conversations to be at another level so this whole thing of of taking thinking to a different level where stuff just comes out of nowhere emergent thinking is the ultimate goal and once that happens once people say that is magic we got to have more of this magic. We got to keep doing this inner work and we got to keep improving how we, you know, how we learn. And, you know, and they put in place processes where, you know, everybody that's doing this basically also puts in place processes where people help each other, all right, help each other on specific behaviors that they need to improve. And in the book, there's a long diagnostic that people can take and they can see the behaviors they need. And, and if they grade themselves honestly, they'll see, okay, I need to work on these behaviors and there's a methodology, how do you do this? And you basically, teams share with each other, we're working on this. And they give people feedback, five minutes of feedback at the end of each meeting. And you start seeing improvement. And this thing takes over and the magic, the magic of collective flow is the thing that cements it in organizations and in groups that every they look back and they say everything i've worked on over the last years is worth it we are we this is this is so different that's the world 
that at least at this stage of the game, that's the world technology is not going to be able to play in. So, Ed, I'm hoping that as people have been listening to our conversation, they've become inspired and motivated to become hyper learners, to push themselves by challenging their assumptions about themselves and others, questioning those biases we all have and how they can blind us from seeing new paths and opportunities to learn, grow and succeed. So what's a good first step based on our conversation today that our listeners can take to start this process? Well, I think the first, the first step is they have to make meaning of the process. And so, you know, what I'd say it's free, so it doesn't cost them any money uh, down, go to the book website, www.edhess.org and download the prologue, which is a summary of the book. It's the summary of the book. And they also can look and they'll see many articles, the many podcasts, uh, blogs, and read some stuff and, and see how it feels to them. And then if they make the decision, this makes sense. Okay. It makes sense. Uh, it, it makes sense because there's so much science behind it. And it makes sense that there's other people that are saying the same thing, not just Ed Hess. All right. What do I do? And I think the, the place where you start is you got to start working on self and the, and the, and the, the highest bang for the buck in the beginning is taking up meditation, practice of daily intentions and a daily practice of gratitude. Gratitude helps quiet the ego. Gratitude also makes you understand the impact that other people, what I call otherness. And so, and you start off and you can, you basically start your practice and you'll do meditation two to three minutes a day. You'll work up maybe after a week or so to five minutes. And then maybe after two or three more weeks, you work up to 10 minutes and then you work up to 20 minutes. And, and you know, it's got, this, and you just, you get, you get to the point where you're spending with your deep breathing and everything. You maybe are spending 40 minutes a day on working on self and uh, at a minimum but it'll, that will work and people will see the results. People will notice how you changed and you will basically be, if you will, reacting differently. You won't be so reflexive. You won't be on automatic pilot. You'll be calmer. You'll be asking better questions and you'll be sort of redefining sort of like who you want to be in this sense of, you know, where, what's my ego, what's my ego invested in? My ego is invested in, becoming my my best self my ego's not invested in being better than jane or jim my biggest competition is myself my everyone's biggest competition in the digital age is themselves you know most a lot of people do physical training every day the digital age is going to require that we do physical training and mind training and heart training and the people that basically seek excel are going to be the people that do that work just like great athletes great musicians great artists great warriors they do the work the daily work day in and out and it is joyous it is joyous and people keep a journal and they write down what they're learning and they sort of write down where they are and they will see their progress they'll see their progress and, the, and there is such joy in this journey that once people get into it you know, most people just keep going and it just continues to get better. And that impacts your entire life. 
your home life and your work life and your approach and you find you you and you find that you're happier you're happier that life's more meaningful and as I said at the beginning of our conversation, my curiosity about your latest book was certainly piqued when I saw the title. And I have to tell you again what a pleasant and enjoyable read it was because the insights you shared were so unexpected and yet made complete sense in terms of changing how we understand the nature of learning and adapting to change. It was such an encouraging read, and I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about it, as I'm sure you've got many people listening, rethinking what they should be doing going forward to become a better learner, to help them prepare and embrace the evolving changes the digital age is bringing and will continue to bring to the way we work. So thanks for coming on my show, Ed, to share your insights on how we can become better learners and through the process, a better version of who we can be. Thank, thank, thank you for a wonderful Making Meaning conversation. And, uh, and, and thank you for all the value you added uh, to, to your listeners in, in giving, giving your views. And uh, I, I appreciate that. And uh, uh, I wish you all the best on your journey, my friend. Thanks a lot, Ed. I really appreciate it. I love how you referred to our conversation as making a meaning conversation. I wholeheartedly agree with you. As I said at the start of our conversation, Ed's book, Hyper Learning, presents a fascinating and thought-provoking look at how all of us can not only become better learners, but how we can become more adaptive and responsive to the impending changes all industries will inevitably face as AI and other emergent technologies transform the way we work. To learn more about Ed's work and to get that link to download a free chapter from his book, check out the show notes for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that's a wrap on this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tavernasir Leadership. Now, if you enjoyed learning about this or other insights I've discussed here on my leadership podcast, then you'd be interested in having me share them with your employees. I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tavernasir.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out my speaking page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage you to share this or other episodes of my podcast with your colleagues and employees. The easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to my show's podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And with that, I'm Tavern Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.